What is going on, Freedom Pack family? We are back today for another episode. Today on the show, we are joined by none other than MJ DeMarco at mj.demarco on Instagram. For the people that have followed us since day dot, right from the beginning, since the podcast started, everybody knows that MJ was one of the very first people that we ever wanted to speak to. So much so that when I think back to August last year, we put up a post on Instagram which simply read, MJ DeMarco, we want you on the Freedom Pack podcast. It didn't happen then, but patience, persistence, and a whole lot of growth later, it has finally happened. I'm sure it doesn't need much introduction, but MJ is the best-selling author of the book, The Millionaire Fastlane, which is just a phenomenal book. It sold, I don't even know how many copies, just so, so many. His latest book, Unscripted, has just hit the shelves, and it is a very, very interesting read. So, MJ has a real interesting background. He founded limos.com many years ago, which was a directory for people searching for limos. Because of the nature of the business, it had two things. It had scale and it had magnitude. Two ideas which we talk about in today's podcast. And because of the nature of those two things, essentially, he created a a money printing machine. MJ sold the business once. And in fact, he bought it back, improved it, and then sold it many years later for many, many, many millions. MJ is also the founder of the entrepreneurship-based forum, which is called the Fastlane Forum. That will be linked below. MJ also has his own publishing company right now. So I sort of see MJ as a real genius in the field of entrepreneurship. And I don't say that lightly. I love how he takes entrepreneurship and he breaks it down into a a practical science. And in fact, most of the business decisions that I've personally made in my own life has been based on the work that MJ's done. So overall, I absolutely loved speaking to MJ. This is a fantastic interview. The first part of the interview is broken down into the script in which we're all living by about societal rules and pressures and then we really then delve into the entrepreneurship we look at whether you should chase your passions market needs value skewing fast lane formulas there's all kinds of great stuff in here so guys i won't keep you any longer with the details mg demarco welcome to the freedom pact thanks for having me appreciate uh, being here i think a really powerful place to start with this conversation would be to begin with some visualization as someone that's achieved financial freedom uh, as yourself could you sort of paint a picture to the audience of just what it feels like to to bring that to fruition. You know, what does it feel like knowing that you've got no financial worries anymore? You've achieved freedom in that sense. Uh, it's it's actually indescribable, um, and it, a lot of it, to be honest with you, it doesn't have a lot to do with money. Um, I, I one of the biggest things that I enjoy is being able to get up out of bed. When I want to get up, um, I haven't uh, awoken to uh, an alarm clock or an iPhone or, you know, anything probably in four or five years. And that to me is priceless. That to me is uh, true freedom. There's also, you know, there's freedom walking into a store, you know, not having to worry about, 
you know, what a loaf of bread costs or having a uh, mortgage payment. I don't have any housing debt. I don't have any car payments. So it's just an incredible amount of freedom. And I've really, um, from an early age, wanted to design my life in a fashion where I had maximum freedom in a world that really doesn't allow for maximum freedom, just the way it's designed. Um, but it's, it's just, uh, it's indescribable because you can do things that, that don't, that don't have to be validated by money. Um, I own a publishing company now, which yes, is a business, but it's more of a passion project, meaning I can write things from the heart. Uh, as we were talking about earlier, I can write things, you know, that may not be completely marketable and make a lot of money or whatnot. I can really pursue things that matter to me first and foremost to my soul as opposed to, hey, is this going to make money or is this economically viable? Um, and, that, and that, again, is an, another aspect of the freedom uh, is just to pursue things that matter to you and having money be on the back burner. Just as you were saying all that, I... You know, I mean, how could, you know, anyone not really relate to it? So what age were you when you were actually in a position to say that you could achieve that freedom, which you talk about? Uh, I was about 31 years old. Um, at that time, I owned a company which had a, a pretty decent valuation, eight-figure valuation. Um, so I knew it had some value in the marketplace. Uh, I also uh, was a pretty religious saver. Um, you know, at the time I was making six figures uh, in profits per month, um, and I would save most of that. You know, because uh, I knew you know money was a key a key component to uh, you know retiring early or having freedom. So I, you know, I had I did own a Lamborghini and whatnot and some other fun things, but for the most part, I saved seventy, eighty percent of what I earned. Um, so I could have options later in life, um, you know, in case I wanted to do things differently or, uh, you know, pursue things that, um, you know, might not have economic viability. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, in my early 30s when I realized, um, you know, hey, uh, I could really do, do things that matter to me as opposed to, you know, what mattered to the market. So for all of our audience that are listening to this, I mean – one of the things which you say in Unscripted is if I accept average advice from average people, people living average lives, can I expect to be anything but average? And you clearly have the pedigree. And I think that this is why people relate to the book so well. And if we just look at, say, your second book, Unscripted, I mean, I'd love to know, you know, I mean, how far does this script that you know you talk about that's governing our lives? How far deep does the rabbit hole go? Oh, it's extremely deep. Um, I feel like I'm walking, uh, I'm walking the planet uh, amongst a uh, zombie pandemic, and everyone's just <laughs> a zombie. And I, once once you rip the blinders off and see what's going on, there's there's no going back. Um, and it's a shame because people don't. People aren't being taught to critically think. They're not taught to question authority. They're not. They're not taught to question. You know what the media is telling them, what their government is telling them, what their politicians are telling them, um, and then they live their lives. Uh, you know, in a state of hyper reality, which is basically false realities that seem real. And uh, they never question it. So um, Unscripted is a business book, but it also tries to tie this all into into questioning how we are living our lives um, in accordance to the script, because that's simply what everyone else does. And, and, and the, the phrase you mentioned there earlier is, yes, if you accept conventional wisdom from conventional people living a conventional life, can you expect to be anything but conventional? So it really digs deep into those types of conventions that we have to question and how to uh, escape that through the power of entrepreneurship. What do you think some of the biggest scripts are that we've been programmed to follow? And, and an example which I loved that I thought that you gave in, in both books was that five plus two idea, trade in five days of the Absolutely. week for two days free. 
Yes, then that's uh, that's the hyper. That's one of the hyper realities I talk about. Um, is this default acceptance to trade away your Monday through Friday for the paycheck of Saturday and Sunday? Now, Monday through Friday is a human construct. There's no celestial reason for it, astronomical or whatnot. It is a human construct designed for economic obedience and compliance, meaning you're you're implied that you have to give up those days for work, and then your paycheck for that work is Saturday and Sunday. And it's no coincidence that you are educated five days a week, Monday through Friday, for 18 years, so you can work. For the next 51 years, Monday through Friday, or 50 years, Monday through Friday, the truth is Saturday is exactly the same as a Monday. Tuesday is the same as a Thursday. They're all the same, but culture has indoctrinated us to believe that these days have to be traded away in a livelihood or in a money-making venture. Um, And part of that hyper-reality is the five-for-two Uh, normality, which is you trade five days to get two back. Now, if I offered you an investment that returned two for a price of five, you would say no. Now, think about that because time time expires. You can't get it back. So this is not a principal return. You don't keep the five days and get two back. You lose the five days and get two back. So that's an immediate negative 60% return on your time when we adopt a Monday through Friday work regime um, as a standard. And we wouldn't accept that in finance, but we accept it with time, and it's absolutely ridiculous. Now, entrepreneurship offers an escape from that. Um, I'm not suggesting that as entrepreneurs you don't you get to never work, but you have to – be in a system where that, that where that type of structure can be defeated. It can be dismantled. And entrepreneurship is the only means to make that happen. Do you have any other favorite type of scriptures which we've been programmed to follow? And I can just give some of mine, which you know, which I, I really thought about. And you talk about some of these in the book. I thought about marriage. Yeah. I thought about university the nine-to-five job and i also thought about alcohol about how is you know about how is it's just i mean you're you're almost looked as some sort of you know cultural outcast if you say i don't want to drink any alcohol but nobody questions these things and i really appreciated you you know offering people the the quote-unquote red pill yeah and there's so many scripts. Yes, marriage is one of them. University, that you absolutely need a college degree, or otherwise you're going to be end up at the fry machine flipping burgers. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not sure how it is in the in uh, the UK, but in America, most college degrees are worthless, um, and we're sending just hundreds of thousands of kids to school and just submerging them in debt. Um, to get a job that doesn't exist. And that's another hyper-reality. The, the idea that, hey, if I get a college degree, that job is guaranteed to be there. Well, economics doesn't work like that, and that's happening as a lot of these kids are finding that out um, after they graduate when there's no job available for their particular you know, horticulture degree or something else that they pursued that's their passion. Um, another script that I um, personally discovered I, I became a vegan two years ago, and I found that uh, I can't kill a I can't kill anything. I mean, I, there's a bug in the house, and I throw it out. I don't squash it. I throw it outside the house, and I realize that you know here I am eating meat and following a script just because it's always been done that way. So I started looking into that, looking into the health side of it, looking into the economic impact of it, the environmental impact, and I realized, oh my God, this is a script too. Um, so. About two years ago, I recently went vegan. So that was another script. I'm not going to get on that side of the uh, the um, pontification, but there's just they're everywhere. And uh, when you learn to critically think and put aside your biases and your judgments, you can start to expose these things that culture has normalized, and you just don't realize it. So, do you think that the antidote to dealing with this type of scripture is critical thinking? Or do you think that there's another way in which we can sort of free ourselves? 
Well, it's absolutely critical thinking and uh, the absorption of information um, that you normally would not consider or you normally would dismiss. And that takes a lot of mental discipline, I guess, because most people, like just for politics sake, most people, they have a political view. They're going to the website that foments that political view. They're not going to another website to get the other side. They're not going to, you know, they're not digging for facts. They're digging to confirm their biases. So you have to be a factual observer. You have to look for the facts as opposed to, you know, I just want to confirm my bias. I just want to feel good about this, you know. And again, that was a lot of things that moved me on to veganism. As I was looking for facts, not for justifications to continue to do what I was doing. Um, so when you become a factual observer as opposed to a person that's just looking to confirm their biases, things start to fall away and you start to see the truth as opposed to what you want to see. I think the, the, the five for two script is something that's becoming more um, you know known in society these days. And I think you know being an entrepreneur has lost some of the the stigma and doubt it may have had when you uh began this journey yourself and i think a lot of people are starting to consider it um more of a viable avenue these days but i think the one of the big problems with that is i think a lot of people have lost the values of what it means to be an entrepreneur so what i wanted to ask you were what are some of the values that you know are the difference between being an entrepreneur and being a one-trepreneur um, well, there's especially now there's some very big differences. Entrepreneurship, uh, at least the kind of entrepreneurship I promote, is about value. It's about uh, creating relative value and making the world a better place than you left it. Now, it's great to have all these side motives. You know, I want to be free. I want to get rich. I want to follow passions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But ultimately, that doesn't matter. You have to provide. Uh, the marketplace with some incredible value so the money does actually flow to your business. Unfortunately, I mean, this look, I wrote my first book almost 10 years ago. And now, I mean, man, things have really changed um, since I wrote it back then. Uh, it's just now it's become a, um, I call it pro marketing, where it's really not about entrepreneurship and about providing value, but about getting the money about about uh, doing what you love and about it's all these selfish motives um that really isn't what entrepreneurship is about entrepreneurship is about creating value where there is none or doing um something that is incrementally better i call it relative value because that's all you need to be an entrepreneur is relative value instead we have people that become expert marketers and they know how to sell garbage um and that's uh, the distinction that we see a lot now with, you know, make money online, start your own business, be your own boss. And ultimately what's there is not a lot of value, but a lot of great marketing. And there's a big difference between the two. Do you think that in this pursuit that an FTE event, as you call it in Unscripted, is necessary for, say, unplugging? and also, say, for for making that leap? Or do you think that someone can do it without it? What do you think? I think it's possible for both, but the FTE, which is called a F, F this event, I don't know if I can say the word on... Please, <laughs> fuck this event. It's fuck, this. fuck this event. <laughs> uh, when you just realize, I can't do this anymore, and you realize something is wrong, um, it could be you're getting fired from work, it could be... You know, you're stuck in an airport somewhere or, or maybe you get sick and realize, you know, life is short. That That is very traumatic and it compels people to make changes because change is very difficult. The worst enemy to change is comfort. And most people are comfort and um, comfortable. Mediocre comfort does not lead to change, which is why most people do not change because they're comfortable on the couch watching their TV after the after after work and their beer on the weekend. That is mediocre comfort, which compels them not to do much of anything. So the FTE is kind of something that breaks through that. Um, the other thing that breaks through that 
is having a purpose, having a, uh, a meaning that drives you to understand that, you know what, this comfort, yeah, it's okay, it, but it's not worth it. I'm willing to do absolutely what is necessary to break free and free myself. And a purpose usually is, it could be something is, you know, I want to cure cancer or I just want to be free. Or for me, it was, for me, it was when I was, I don't know, 17, 18, and I was living in Chicago, I would see every morning at 6, 6.30 in the morning at the train station, people going down to Chicago in their stiff polyester suits and I would look at those people and just everyone looked miserable and I said to myself there's no way in hell I can do that I cannot do that I will commit suicide and that to me was my purpose I mean it was it was stupid maybe for you know from the person on the outside looking in but for me it was very personal so it could be something like that it could be you want to show your mom and dad or your parents that you can be something better than you are. It could be, you know, superficial things like that. But ultimately, it's an either an FTE, a fuck this event, or having a strong purpose that drives you to do what most people will not and get you away from all the distractions that are out there. And the distractions are there for a reason. They keep you scripted. What are the examples of, of an FTE event that people may be listening to this now and, and that they may sort of recognize. What 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 other examples of, of that type of um, well, FT could you could you give? Millions of people had FTE events in the financial recession ten years ago, mm. the crash of two thousand eight, when people lost half of their retirement portfolio in the stock market. That's another script that the stock market's going to make you rich if you invest in it for 50 years. Um, millions of people had an FTE when the housing market cr- crashed here in the States and lost their houses to foreclosure. That's an FTE. When you get laid off unexpectedly, that could be an FTE. Uh, there's just there's so many things that you realize that when, when you're not in control of your financial plan, FTEs happen. And uh, the purpose of unscripted entrepreneurship is to try to reclaim control over what you can control. And personally, I don't think giving your entire life savings to the stock market is a good financial strategy. And that's pretty much a script where it's pretty much – that's acceptable. That's what everyone is trained to do, and no one thinks twice about it. But I think twice about it because I don't do it. Yeah. You know, when, when you look at, say, you know, what you promote is critical thinking and you do it so well. I mean, I think that, you know, you read the millionaire fast lane and you think to yourself that, that say, say you're, you're in the slow lane and you give your heart and soul for a company could be 40, 60, 80, a hundred hours a week for a company. I mean, if you died on the Thursday, they would, they would have your position filled by the Monday. You know, that really is the, the, I think the red pill truth, which you talk about, you know, and that's the nature, I think, of of losing the the control aspect. Um, so, were were you just not in favor of of you know of having a a wheelchair in the boot of your Lamborghini? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and that's another very poignant script is you know in finance, this concept of called the time value of money where a dollar today is much more valuable than a dollar in 50 years. And yet we never, we never train that kind of thinking to time, meaning two, you know, a year of freedom when we're young is much better than a year of freedom when we're 70 years old. So the time value of time also plays in just like the time value of money, which is why, I think unscripted entrepreneurship, we, we reprioritize these things where time is valuable, where we get away from the, the, the default, well, I have to trade my time for money in order to make money. We, we want to reverse all these systemic scripts that put us you know, on the road to conventional living and conventional thinking so we can 
escape all that and actually live the lives we want to live. We've we've talked about the scripts. We've talked about escaping and living that unscripted life. What does an unscripted life look like if you were to try and paint a picture to the listener? Well, as I said earlier, you don't have to worry about money. You don't have to worry about time clocks. You don't have to worry about a boss breathing over your neck. Um, you look at the you look at the world very differently. Um, I, I don't watch the media, the the television. I watch very little television because I've created a life that is worth living, and I don't need to escape from it. Um, so a lot of times, people are talking about culture online they're talking about stuff you know oh the soccer team won or this i have no idea what they're talking about because i don't care about that stuff i've you know i've built a life that is worth living um and the other thing it was a also i mentioned earlier is about you can focus on things that are important to you um you know, passion projects, you know, writing a book that you've been wanting to write, uh, volunteering for an animal rescue, doing whatever, maybe getting into politics for heaven's sake, uh, whatever it is, that's the point of the free, having freedom. Because when I talk about freedom, I'm not talking about retirement when you sit on your butt and do nothing. Because that gets old very quick. I'm talking about doing things that matter to you and your family. And that's different for everyone. A lot of people, after they read my book, or, or visit my forum, they say, oh, I'm not interested in Lamborghinis and all that stuff. That's, I would say most people are like that. And that's a good thing to have because it's different for everyone. Not everyone needs the fast car and the big house. It's all about freedom. That's why I'm on this show. It's called the Freedom Pact. My main priority is to get us to freedom. Yeah. And uh, we appreciate the endorsement, MJ. <laughs> and um, and for everybody listening to that, it's worth pointing out that MJ identifies as semi-retired. And, and I think that this is worthwhile because, of course, you know, there's no financial burdens. And you talk about, you know, paying off your houses in cash and, and these things. The semi-retired implies that you can literally do whatever work that you want from a, a position of of abundance and not out of necessity. Um so so just thinking back, what was your aha moment, MJ? When did you know that this life was for you? When I was sixteen or fifteen, sixteen thirteen, I don't even know. I was I was a teenager. Uh, I saw a Lamborghini when I was very young outside of ice cream shop and I and uh, I asked the owner, he was a young guy and that threw me for a loop to start with um because back then you didn't see young guys uh you know you had to be an athlete or you had to be famous uh, to be rich back then uh, and he said he was an inventor um which put me on the concept of entrepreneurship uh way back then so at that point um i kind of drew a connection that oh my god you know i can get rich because the Lamborghini represented wealth, I can get rich young if I become an entrepreneur or an inventor. So that put me on the path as a young person to study um, entrepreneurship as a career path. And I, I never let that go, um, despite having, you know, some detours here and there. I never let go of that concept uh, for the rest of my life. I understand that an idea you're fiercely passionate about is to not follow your passion, but more to follow what the market needs. How important is this? Well, I think there's a there's a confusion when we talk about passion. The buzzword is, oh, follow your passion. Uh, you know, and, and it started when Steve Jobs said this years ago, when he said, um, I believe it was, love what you do. And, and and what happens is people attack the marketplace as entrepreneurs very selfishly, meaning they're not providing any value. They're just providing what is valuable to them. And unfortunately, the market is a very selfish place. They don't care about your selfish whims about to be your own boss or you want to do this or you want to do why. It, the market doesn't care. And if the market doesn't care, you're not going to get money. Now, the passion comes in when you actually start providing value to the marketplace. And the, and the market echoes back, oh, my God, I love your, prompt, your product or I love your book. 
or I love what you're doing, that is a very passionate feedback mechanism. It's called the feedback loop. When that happens, that drives passion. So when we go back to Steve Jobs and he was saying that, he is saying that because the world, the entire world is using his product. Do you think you would be passionate if you invented something that the entire world was using? Of course you would. Now, if we flip that around, what if Steve Jobs was an inventor and nobody, absolutely nobody used anything he invented? In fact, nobody used it. He was often criticized for it. Oh, your product sucks. Do you think he would still have passion? Eh, it probably wouldn't be there. At some point, he'd end up quitting because the market is not giving him viable feedback. So the passion is actually a feedback loop that occurs when you inject value into the marketplace and the marketplace bounces back. Oh, this is awesome. We love what you're doing here. That's where the, that's where the passion comes from. So if you're busy following passion, uh, more than likely you're in a marketplace that is very saturated because everyone is following their passion. A good example is personal training. Everyone loves fitness and wants to become a personal trainer. Well, that market space is very crowded because you got everyone following their passion and they're not paying attention to market demand or market economics or what the market needs. So... Next time you want to follow your passion, go into your bank, uh, and when you want to pay your mortgage, your housing payment, uh, start playing your guitar in front of the bank teller, and she'll say, hey, what are you doing? You say, well, I'm paying my mortgage with passion. I'm passionate <laughs> about playing the guitar. And she'll look at you and go, sorry, we don't accept that. So only one thing pays bills and buys college educations and mortgages pays more and that's money in order to get money you have to provide relative value so if there's no relative value you're not going to be able to attract money so stop following passions and let the passion flow to you with the value you inject into the marketplace Uh, you know i can completely testify to this because lewis and i before we started this podcast we were pretty much huge into the personal development, the business, the entrepreneurial space. And we were listening to podcasts and they were very wishy-washy in terms of, you know, just talking about the laws of attraction. And we couldn't find any that were, you know, giving any real practical advice. So, so we said like, let's just start a conversation where we try to give real actionable, uh, uh, real actionable advice, you know, or, or interact with people you know that can you can take their ideas and you can implement them. You can you can you can start today. We we sort of experimented with it, and the the listens they just it just took away. You know they they just they just went. They it just it just kept on rolling in and rolling in and rolling in. You know, and this is obviously what's led to us. You know, speaking to you know wonderfully talented authors like yourself, and that's that's an example of the the value feedback loop which you talk about there because. Because it wasn't as if, you know, we were massively passionate about it. It was that we saw a problem that we wanted to solve for ourselves. Is that what you think that other people should look at and do? Absolutely. You follow the need. You follow where there's opportunity. You follow where value can be created. And then when the market bounces back that you're, you're on the right path, that's where you start to feel passion. Uh I guarantee you I wouldn't be talking on this right now, on your podcast right now, if no one ever said anything about it, if no one gave you some feedback, if all the people that you asked to be interviewed ignored you or said no, and or maybe all the reviews were one star, these guys suck, da-da-da-da-da, you'd say, you know, this isn't worth it because the market is giving you some feedback, and the feedback is critical to determining if you're going to have that, you know, that passion fire. What if Warren Buffett got on the news and said, hey, you you need to listen to the Freedom Pact. He'd be like, oh, uh, I mean, that would inspire some, you know, passion that validates what you're doing. You're solving a problem. You're doing something better. So, yes, follow where there's market needs and do that. And the passion will fire. Believe me. Now, I'm not suggesting that 
building a business is all fun and games. It isn't. And that's another thing we have to get away from. It's it's tough. Building a business is not all passion. Building a business is it, what I like to say is you tell me how much you're, how much are you willing to do what you hate. That's going to tell me how much you're willing to succeed. Not do what you love. How much are you willing to do what you hate? That tells me how much you're going to succeed. What are some of the major ways that you can obtain and, and gain that market uh, market feedback? Well, all you have to do is you keep you look. Is the world perfect? First of all, it's not perfect, so you know there's market needs out there. Wherever there's a a, a a lack. Uh, it could be something convenient. It could be, um, I call it a value skew. Any place where you can skew value in a value attribute or a value array is an opportunity. A value skew is pretty much anything that compels you to buy something. If you're looking at a package of food, it could be a certain ingredient that compels you to buy. It could be a the label design is more attractive. It could be the label had a story on it that aligned with you and your and your purpose. So creating a business is all about value skew. And a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs that are just starting are always like, oh, I don't have any ideas because they're looking, you know, to create the next Uber or the next Facebook. And that's that's not entrepreneurship. All we're simply looking to do is to skew variables, skew value uh, value variables on a few different few different variables. Meaning, your customer service is better. Your product ingredients uh, you may have a couple ingredients that are better, a couple features that are better. Uh, your website is designed better. I mean, there's so many value attributes that could be skewed that compels a business um and that's all it is i mean that's entrepreneurship you skew uh, value skew on a couple variables and bam you have yourself a business you do not need to reinvent the wheel if we stay on this idea of value skewing which is just such a brilliant concept how many of these potential metrics can we skew? You mentioned a few there: customer service, website design. What What do you think the major ones that our audience should should look at are? Well, the one the the major one that consumers default to obviously is price. price yeah. You know, I want I want to be the cheapest. Well, you, I don't buy everything just because it's cheapest. I don't know about you, but I don't. Um, but that's a big one. Uh, another one is convenience. Uh, design, customer service, ambiance, in case you're a restaurant. Um, a good example uh, that I used in my book was Uber. Uh, now, I came from a ground transportation business um, years ago, so I'm very familiar with the business. What Uber did was they skewed, value skewed, every single variable in the equation from convenience to time uh, to cleanliness to price they skewed every variable that was available in the ground transportation industry, which is why now they're a billion-dollar company, albeit they're not making any money, but they're still a billion-dollar company because they were able to do that. But all you need is one variable skewed to technically have yourself a business, and that could be as simple as you're just a better marketer. Your product could be exactly the same as everyone else's in the, in the marketplace, but you're a better marketer. So if you're a better marketer, that means you're reaching more people and selling to more people. So value skew is is just – there's just so many opportunities with it because what you really want to do is reinver- reverse engineer the industry that you're working in and trying to determine where are there are opportunities to skew value. Well, this company doesn't answer their email. Well, this company, their website looks like it was designed in 1999. Or this company, they're, way too, they're priced way too high. This company – they don't offer any colors in their in their versions. There's just opportunities of the yin yang when you look at starting a business from the value skew perspective. Yeah, if you link that concept, if you pair that up with the idea that you talk about in unscripted that you call sense, which you look at, and I mean in the book you describe it as entrepreneurial steroids. <laughs> you know, which I love. What what I love that you were doing is that you're coming out, and I noticed that you don't use the word luck; you use probability and you use statistics because you're yes. saying that you're you're essentially increasing the odds. 
could you talk a little bit about the sense principle? Sure. Sense is a framework. Um, sense, C-E-N-T-S, um, is a business framework that will um, guide you into the right uh, opportunities to pursue. Um, because, you know, our objective is all the same, is to obtain freedom, is to elevate our income uh, to levels where we can save a lot of it and uh, free ourselves from the script permanently for the rest of our lives. So the sense framework is a guideline of um, a way to structure your business, a way to launch your business, a way to grow your business. And it stands for sense, which is C, it means control. You want to control everything that you can to the, to the best degree you can, meaning you don't want to give up control of your company to one individual or one company. For instance, uh, uh, you have a product that Walmart carries, but Walmart's your only customer. And if Walmart cancels your company, you're out of business. So that's kind of a control metric. Entry uh, is E. That stands for entry, which means you want to get into a business that is not easy to get into. Because if you're getting into something that takes seconds to start, you're really not solving any problems. You're not skewing any value. So if anybody can start the business you just started in minutes, you're not solving anything. You're not. You're not. You're just joining the ranks. You're. You're. You're gambling. Um, there's no statistical probabilities there that are going to help you. And uh, N stands for need, which is the most important of the sense commandments, is you need to provide value into the marketplace. There needs to be a need. Uh, it needs to be uh, variables that are skewed, the value skew we just talked about earlier. T is time. Eventually, we want to be able to divorce ourselves from this business, uh, meaning this business will be able to exist without us. The company, um, the first company I sold uh, twice, still exists to this day, and I haven't been there in years. My books will exist long before I'm long, bef- you know, long after I'm gone. They will probably always sell for another 10, 20 years. They exist separate from my time, so there needs to be an element of um, where the product exists in space time, where the product or service exists in space time, separate from you. This allows us to earn income while we're sleeping. You know, as the old saying goes, you'll never get rich unless you learn how to make money while you're sleeping. And the time commandment um, is relative to that. And the final uh, commandment of the sense commandments is S or scale. And that reflects um, into the mathematical element of, uh, of this. If you want to get rich and free yourself, you have to be attached to mathematics that are favorable to creating wealth. This is why time, uh, you know, trading your time for money is a horrific metric for creating wealth because you can't scale time. There's only 24 hours in a day, 80 years in a lifespan. You cannot scale that, which is why most people who are wage slaves, time slaves, never get rich. Now, scale is involving what do you do? What is the value that you create? How replicatable, how duplicatable is it? Now, my first company, I was involved in lead generation, and I could sell thousands and thousands and thousands of leads every single day. And that was a scalable metric. I could scale that to the stratosphere. Um, How many users visited the website on a daily basis. I could scale that to the stratosphere. Um, Even today in in my passion project, I own a publishing company. My books, I can sell millions and millions of them. They're translated around the world in 10 different languages. All these metrics, readers, is scalable. Um, I run a business forum. Uh, Traffic is scalable. Uh, I have friends that own product companies, you know, shaving companies, um, dog companies uh, who sell collars and whatnot. All these items are scalable, meaning they can can easily sell 100 a day as as the same as 1,000 a day. Those numbers 
is what allows you to scale up your income and get outside of this time constraint problem uh, that we all have when it comes to creating wealth that the script uh, tells us to do. Um, and that's, that's one of the most powerful things of the sense commandments is those, those uh, metrics. Yeah. That, that's, that was so perfect. And thank you so much for, for breaking that down and just staying on scale and magnitude. That was, I, I would say probably one of the lasting things, which I got from the millionaire fastlane and that's really governed everything which which I've done since and I remember thinking I remember actually like writing down examples of like a slow lane formula and then a fast lane formula so like an example which like I, I think of would be say I wanted to like own a like, uh, I wanted to be like a personal trainer and rather than doing it in person in my local gym because there's no scale and there's hardly any magnitude rather than say becoming an online personal trainer I'm not saying I want to do this but I'm saying that then that has scale and magnitude. Another example I, I know you talked on the fast lane is instead of owning a restaurant, own a franchise because that governs the scale and the magnitude principles, which honestly, I just, I just love that idea. And I think that for the entrepreneurs listening, I mean, I, I, I think that this is something which, which we should all, I, I think that this for me is one of the biggest takeaways just looking at the the does your business have scale does it have magnitude if not it's a slow lane formula yes there has to be a there has to be at some point that you can ramp up um, a lot of times it doesn't happen right away but there has to be a long game vision the sense commandments um, are there for both short and long term uh, you know the time commandment a lot of, a lot of times that doesn't come into play until after a year or two you've been in business. Um, you know, there was, when I first started uh, my business and even my forum, uh, I, I worked a lot. Uh, and this passive income thing, that, that was nowhere to be found. I had to work my butt off to get to that point. Uh, so a lot of these things, you know, they, they happen after a certain period of time. And we it's important we have those expectations, uh, especially you, know, you talk about franchising, you know, owning a restaurant. Man, that is time consuming. Um, and then if you want to start franchising that, that's uh, that's also time consuming as well. So you're talking about maybe years before you actually start, you know, hitting these commandments and really seeing uh, some momentum change in your life. So those expectations are very important. You talk about this idea of, of being faithfully monogamous with your business and not, say, launching a new business every three months or so. Uh, is this becoming, you know, a bit of a problem? And, and why is this so important to you, this idea of, of staying monogamous to that business? Uh, because if you're just getting started out, um, that's the only way you're going to succeed is monogamy. And that is you focus on one business and one business only. Um, it's, I mean, it's like marriage. If your wife or your spouse is not going to accept uh, you know, you splitting your time among two different people. It just doesn't work. They're, you're getting half the effort. Um, and the problem there is we live in a competitive uh, marketplace. So if you're spending half your time uh, invested in one business, your competitor that isn't spending half his time is going to squash you. Uh, so I think it's, I mean, business, business is hard enough. I mean, this, I'm not, I'm not trying to paint a rosy picture here. You know, starting a business and being an entrepreneur is not all fun and games. Um, so what happens is we have a lot of these, uh, I call them dreampreneurs or entrepreneurs who, you know, they want to be entrepreneurs, but, you know, as soon as they launch their product, they want passive income. You know, they want the Ferrari. They're not willing to put the work in. Um so monogamy is, uh, I think, is terribly important um, to building and scaling a business because you have to focus to uh, create traction. And if you're not creating traction, um, if you're creating multiple businesses, what you're saying is, you know, my business sucks, so I'm going to keep doing something different. If you had a business that was making $100,000 a month um, in profit, oh, my God, 100 k a month profit. Why would you do something else? 
So that's that's why people hop and ro- hop around because they're throwing shit against the wall, hoping something stick. The only way you, you transform from monogamy to polygamy is after you've hit it. You know, after you've hit it big. You know, this is why a lot of these high-profile entrepreneurs who've you know made millions and billions of dollars are now suddenly in twenty different ventures. It's because they can afford to. Uh, you know, they can afford to be, uh, you know, crazy with their ideas. And that's they're doing that from a point from a point of unscription. That's an unscripted entrepreneur when you're dabbling in 20 different enterprises because you can because you can afford it. But for the rest of us who are just starting out and we're just looking to free ourselves, you absolutely have to be monogamous with your business. One business and one business only. It's, it's so interesting you say this because I think of. Um, some sort of influencer entrepreneurs and two that initially come to mind are, are sort of Grant Cardone and Gary Vee and I've heard them talk about you know trying as many businesses as you possibly can when you're starting out and the idea if you know if you haven't hit a certain metric by nine months I think it was Gary Vee that said that he then moved it's time to move on to the next one so when would you say what is a good metric to know when it is time to move on to a new business? When you have verified that what you're offering is not a what I call a productocracy, a productocracy sells by itself. Um, a productocracy sells on its merits. Uh, in other words, people are sharing your product. People are recommending your product. So if, if you launch something and you absolutely need to advertise in order to survive, that's a point where I would give up. I'd say, forget it. This isn't working because I don't want to own a marketing company. I want to own a business that provides value. And just to give you a good example is uh, when I, when my first book, I wrote my first book, The Millionaire Fast Lane, wrote it over 10 years ago. I went through a phase where I'm like, okay, is this a productocracy or is it just, just another old book that most people aren't going to be interested in? And once I discovered that people were sharing it, you know, on Facebook or Twitter or whatnot, and people were recommended. I was getting emails. I still get emails every single day. Hey, so-and-so recommended your book, you know, uh, and I loved it. So that validation that people are recommending it, meaning I am making money, I am selling product without advertising, that's the point I continue. That's the point I say, hey, you know what? This is worth investing in. Um, and being monogamous with this is something you know i wouldn't have written unscripted book two unscripted my second book if the if if the market hated the millionaire fast lane if i sold 100 copies of the millionaire fast lane and i didn't have readers saying oh my god this moved me you need to write something else i wouldn't have done it the market was telling me hey we like what you've done and you know you're passionate about it which is even better so when they did that, I bounced back to the market with another with another product. So the point of I can the point of continuation or quitting is is that decision point. Have you created a productocracy, something that sells on its own, something that sells by the merits of its value over oh I just need to market it, I need to advertise it. So that's that to me is the distinction. And do you think that that Another problem which entrepreneurs today are facing is that they are outcome dependent. They're focusing on the outcome rather than the processes and gaining that market feedback and going back and forth with the market in an unselfish way. Do you think that that's a problem? Absolutely, because the market, the market is our boss. Um, you know, uh, as an entrepreneur, people say, "Oh, you're, you're, you know." I'm my own boss. Well, actually, you're not your own boss. You you exchanged one boss in a corporate environment for millions of bosses in a market environment. So when the market is bouncing back to you, hey, your product sucks or it didn't work or this or it's great, that's your boss. Um, one of the models I use uh, to interact with that uh, market is the three A's, what I call the act, assess, adjust model, is you simply act and then you see what the market says. Then you assess and then you adjust based on that. Uh, because, again, the market 
as entrepreneurs is what's paying our bills. It's what's paying the mortgage. It's what's giving us money. So we have to pay attention to what they want and give them what they want. Otherwise, we're not going to get what we want. And when we approach the market selfishly, again, following your passion, doing this, doing that, this is the way I want it to look. This is the way, you know, that's when we get into trouble. Um, you know, a good example, again, is the Millionaire Fast Lane. I wrote that not to appease a publisher, but I wrote it because that's what I felt the market needed to hear. I also wanted to kind of get it off my chest because I felt it needed to be said. And the market bounced back. Hey, we like it. We agree with it. We, you know, it's it's moving. So it all cycles from there, from that market feedback. And if you're not paying attention to the market, you're going to lead to a slow death. And and if we just just follow on from this, I wonder what your thoughts are in terms of say reinvestment. Because if we're following your formulas and the market maybe it likes the look of of what we've got to offer. How, you know, and we follow the fast lane formulas. What should the reinvestment process be? Is there a specific percentage you like to go on of, say, pumping the money or the time back into the business? Uh, well, that uh, that's kind of hard to answer without knowing the product, service, mm. the margins, the the expense markup, the long term customer value. There's all kinds of different questions there um, that I probably couldn't say because the, everything is different but at some point you're going to realize that you know hey if i spend five dollars advertising this i make twenty dollars back so at that point you have a money printing machine um if you have a productocracy where every new customer or every three customers generates one new recommendation that again is a money machine um, so all these metrics are variable depending on what the product or services or where channels are. I mean, a lot of people are um, tied to the Amazon ecosystem. A lot of people are uh, tied to different channels. So it's kind of hard to say, but I'm all in favor of reinvesting. Uh, you know, I just had someone on my forum uh, two days ago said, hey, I just sold my company for 500,000 pounds. What do I do now? And the answer was, well, would repeat the process. You just made, you're 27 years old, and you made 500 pounds, which is probably a lot that most people make in their entire lives, and you did it at 27. So why, why not go and repeat the process that you just did? Because that's what's generating the income. Why would you ask, well, how could I make 5% on this money when you just made hundreds of thousands of percent as as we're speaking about this something i'd also like to get your opinion on which i know you're, you're very passionate about is the gurus that that say made their money in one way and then they they follow fast lane formulas but preaching another thing someone that comes to my mind in this regard is tony robbins as soon as the money book came out and, and i have to admit i haven't read it but but i thought to myself i thought He's followed a fast lane formula throughout his life in terms of the, the law of affection, which you talk about, and impacting a lot of people. What what do you think about that? Yeah, it's, uh, I haven't read the book either, but there's an implication that uh, it's a, just a duplicity that is just beyond me. Um, you have these billionaires who are preaching slow lane dogma, you know, stop drinking coffee, save your money, put it in index funds. And they're preaching this dogma, and this is not how they got rich. This is not how they're billionaires. They're using fast lane metrics, fast lane formulas, and preaching slow lane dogma. That's a part of the script. So I can guarantee you, you spend five minutes with any of these billionaires, you're going to learn real quick that their lifestyle has nothing to do with skimping on pennies, stopping coffee drinking, and giving their money to index funds. One of them is a billionaire hedge fund manager who is telling us to invest in the stock market. Well, he's a billionaire hedge funder because millions of people have given him money to manage. And it, it the duplicity never is, it never, it never is called out. Now, as far as Tony Robbins goes, um, he, he – 
he again, you know, people have told me that he wrote the book to reach average people. Okay, well, that's great. But again, he's, I don't think he's a billionaire, but he's, he's a very wealthy man because he's followed fast lane formulas. He's sold millions of books. He's sold billions of dollars in worth of seminars. He's, he's followed fast lane metrics. So when you go out and tell people, yeah, you know, if you save $5 a month for 50 years and put it into an index fund, you will have saved $33,000 over the next 50. I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous that these people are, you know, living a dream life and they're telling other people, well, this is how you do it, but that's not how I did it. And it's just, I, I, I take umbrage with it. Um, even though I recommend Tony Robbins, uh, his books, uh, the awaken, awaken the giant within is a great book. I recommend it. I just take issue when there's a duplicity with what you teach and what you do. Um, it just irks me. How big of an issue is consumption in terms of keeping people in that slow lane then? Consumption is a part of the script. Consumption, uh, is well if i just buy this you know i'll be happy if i just buy this car i'll be successful um you have to control your consumption at some point if you ever want to be free um you know uh, that never goes away uh i could you know if i went and purchased six lamborghinis and filled my garage with six lambos you know i'm gonna get i'm gonna put myself in a financial straight um you know, because again, that's consumption. So consumption always needs to be managed. And but once you realize uh, what consumption you can do without, and what consumption is critical to your freedom, uh, it's it's a pretty easy process to um, straighten out in your life. If we just sort of stay on this road now, so so we've covered unscripted in in so much depth and uh, depth, and we thank you so much for your time. If we just look at, say, the, the the millionaire fast lane and we look from, say, going from the sidewalk, you know, to the fast lane, what do you think that, say, the most important metric of that fast lane formula? Is it the scale? Is it the magnitude? Is it the law of affection? Uh, they're all equally important, but I'm going to say need. Mm. You, you have to provide value to the market. Um, if you don't have that need solved, um, you know, you're going to be relegated to becoming a marketer, you know, a marketer who pushes substandard products, you know, fooling people, which is why the value skew concept is so important. Because uh, the more value you skew, the more potent your offer becomes to the marketplace. And the other thing is, is that this is a process. Starting a business is, you know, that's one of my, I would say, greatest disappointments in in being in the space is watching people who expect that they can, hey, I'm going to launch a business and it fails. And then they're done. Oh, that fast lane shit don't work. <laughs> I tried that entrepreneur thing. Uh, that to me is absolutely, you don't get it. Um, it's like baseball. If you go up to the plate, and you strike out on your first time at bat, and you quit. You were never going to be a good baseball player because you gave up too early. It's about getting up to that plate, and you swing, you swing, you hit foul balls, you strike out, you ground out, and then once in a while you'll get a hit. Sometimes you'll get a home run. If you get a home run, you not only change your life for a lifetime, you'll change generations of your life for a lifetime. But all it takes is a single. A double here and there change your life. So you just you got to continue to get up to that plate. Failing first, second. I failed. I'm gonna. Uh, I think it was about seven, half a dozen times before I actually started getting traction in my first business. Most people aren't willing willing to fail six times before they succeed, and that makes the difference between people who succeed and fail. Is this expectation? That, oh, I tried it. It didn't work. Huh? Have fun with the job. Mm, yeah. And we'll just start to wind this interview down now. And I wonder, I mean, I've got the box here right in front of me, the Millionaire Fastlane and Unscripted. They work so well together. 
And I wonder, what would you say to someone that has listened to this podcast, that has read your books, and they've decided that you maybe they've had an FTE and you know they're about to begin on their journey? What would your message be to the person that has listened to this and they've said, this is the path for me? What would your advice be to someone undertaking that? Uh, make it your life. Um, this is not a career decision. This is a life decision. So when you take that frame of mind, um, when you when you encounter troubles, when you fail your first business, or you fail your first marketing campaign, campaign and lose a you know a hundred dollars or something, um, you won't get discouraged because you've made this your life. This is your objective. This is your purpose. And when you have that long-standing vision of a purpose and a dream, the the, the minor details, the minor setbacks, don't have uh, any any you know any impact on your journey because you know where you're going. Um, it can, it can be done. Uh, we, I have people on my forum that are doing it. I have a guy that is blowing up his business and he still has his full-time job. And uh, people are like, well, you know, how do you find time? Well. He finds time because he knows it's it's his purpose. He's made it his life. It's going to be my life, uh, not a career. And when you do that, it will all come into place at some point. If we, you know, as Joe said, if we bring this conversation to, you know, a perfect crescendo now and we start to ask you three questions that we ask every single guest we have. Um, and the first one is actually... Uh, you know, it should be an easy, easy one for you since you've pretty much written a book on it. Um, we normally ask people what societal rules do they like to break. So my question to you would be, what is your favorite societal rule that you like to break? Doing nothing on a Monday. <laughs> 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 and, and not, not having been stuck in traffic in years. <laughs> I love it. Um, so the next question would be, obviously, you are a successful author yourself. But what our listeners love to, to know is what books have you read in your life that have greatly impacted you? Um, when I was struggling years ago in my 20s, um, I mentioned it already. Awaken the Giant Within by Tony Robbins was a good book. Um, it was his earlier book um, that he did when he was younger. Um, that One Thing by Gary Keller. It's about focus, another great book. And another another book that is pretty obscure, I'm not even sure if it's even available anymore, 20-year-old um, book, What Rich People Know and Desperately Want to Keep Secrets by uh, Brian Shear. Again, if you find that book, good luck. I'm not sure if it's even available anymore. It's a book I read years ago that um, kind of uh, uh, aligned me with Fastlane Principles. And we're just on to our last question here. And our last question is, is that if you could distill all the lessons from your life that down into one short but impactful message that millions would see, what would your message to those people be? Herds are organized for economic purposes. Cattle, sheep, bees, crowds, humans. If you, uh, if you want results... Design for the crowd, in that capacity, follow the crowd. In other words, following the crowd, wisdom of the crowd, does not work in matters not relative to mathematics. Wow. MJ, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a conversation that I've I've wanted to have for so many years. And, and for all our listeners that follow us on Instagram... If they go on to our page, we put up a, a post from August last year saying, MJ DeMarco, we want you on our, on the podcast. And, and it's finally full come circle. So thank you so much, sir. I appreciate you guys having me. It's been fun.